Don't you wonder sometimes what kind of mind thinks of those things, those kind of, that artwork? <laughs> oh, I'm trying to be funny, but that's, uh, that's the work of Carol Rojas, one of our vocalists, and um, her and her husband, wonderful family, their, church, their family, uh, part of our church here, and Lewis is over the, um, over the sound booth and media ministry, and is out today as well because of sickness in their family with the kids, so Carol, thank you for pressing in and being here today. Um, as I said, we are going to continue this morning with the fifth lesson in the series entitled Hell No, and this lesson I've entitled it Is Hell Necessary to Share the Gospel? Um, I thought maybe what we'd do is review some of the key findings from each of the first four weeks. So week one, the title of that message was, where does hell come from? Is it in the Bible? So the, the key takeaway there was hell is missing from the scriptures, Old and New Testament, we found out. The words that the writers used, Hebrew, in Hebrew it was Sheol, in the Greek it was Gehenna, don't mean hell in the traditional sense of modern evangelical circles, which is eternal conscious torment. They simply don't mean that. In week two, the sermon was titled, If Hell is Real, It Depends Almost Entirely on This. And when I say, is hell real, I'm talking about the, um, the infernalism view of hell, eternal conscious torment. Our takeaway there was that the argument for infernalism is based on a theory of atonement known as penal substitution, a belief system which views God as wrathful and vengeful, who requires suffering and death as a payment for sin, and who executes that heavenly justice on his own son on the cross. In week three, we, the message title for that week was let's look at the scriptures on hell. Our key takeaway there was it was a deep dive into the words used in scripture for hell and why the early church did not believe that hell lasts forever. So Sheol, and, um, and uh, Gehenna, we went into those really in depth and then even entertained the idea whether eternal means lasts forever, such as the lake of eternal fire. Is, is that really, does that go forever? And the, and the word eternal simply doesn't mean that, doesn't mean life forever. Now, last week we talked about why is God angry and does he have to get even? And here's a couple of the key takeaways from that message. To understand the wrath of God as well as other difficult subjects in scripture, we have to view them through the lens of metaphor. Very important when you're reading the Bible to understand what portions of it are meant to be metaphor and what portions of it are not. Another key takeaway was that the cross is not a form of payment. It's a place of forgiveness. I love that. That deserves to be on a banner, a bumper sticker, uh, printed out. Uh, I, I want a placard of that <laughs> on my desk. And finally, the crucifixion is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God endures in Christ as he forgives. 
As we begin today's message, I'm going to state the same introductory statement that I have in each of the previous four, which is that this series of messages, I have been pulling in this series of messages and as source material for this series of messages, I've been pulling from the work of some of histories as well as present day's greatest theologians, scholars, and writers, including the writings of the patristic fathers such as Clement, Origen, Ignatius, and Gregory of Nyssen, or Nicaea, Swiss theologian Karl Barth, Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance, English theologian N.T. Wright, and American theologian and pastors Gregory Boyd and Brian Zahn. I owe a deep debt of gratitude to the work of Brad Jerzak, Canadian author, speaker, and pastor, and teacher for his book entitled Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, upon which this series is based. And numerous comments that I've been sharing with you throughout the series have also come from Brian Zahn's book, entitled Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. I would encourage you to get those. So once again, as we look to the message for today, is hell necessary in order for us to share the gospel? Here's the key takeaway. Here's our key statement for today. If the gospel is a system of correct beliefs with the object of going to heaven at life's end, Coercing others into accepting Jesus, lest they be eternally punished, could make sense. However, what if the gospel is none of these? How many of you know what a paradigm is? If I said a paradigm, what, what's your paradigm, or my paradigm is, or the paradigm of that church seems to be, or the paradigm of that organization seems to be? So, a paradigm is a philosophical and, and theoretical framework of a scientific school or discipline within which theories, laws, and generalizations and the experiments performed in support of them are formulated. Now, that's rather, that's rather involved. I will just say that a paradigm is your system of belief. What you are committed to and what for yourself you have proven to be what you want to live by, okay? Now, as I start to share um, my paradigm, I, I wanna put it in a table for you. I'm gonna have a left side and a right side. On the left is the gospel that I heard growing up very legal, very authoritarian. On the right is going to be the gospel that I have discovered, one of grace and one of love, all right? Now, here's what it looks like, the, the whole view. I think I have that, Jeff, in the column on the left. God loves me and created me to have a personal walk or relationship with him, but I don't. Okay, now Jeff, I think that's the one that's the full view. So what I want you to go to now is the half view of the first three lines. I have that in there. There we go. It should be just a little bit bigger for the audience. Again, the gospel that I heard begins this way. God loves me and he created me for a personal relationship with him, but I don't have it. Right now, move over to the right in that column. Here's the gospel I've discovered. 
My heavenly Father is crazy in love with me and walks with me already. I have his DNA. All right, next, God is holy. I am sinful, guilty, and separated from God, so I cannot know him personally or experience his love. On the right, the gospel I've discovered, the idea of separation from God is based on an erroneous interpretation of holiness and an event in Genesis called the fall. A lie was believed, and I, or we, wasn't already fully like God. That's the lie that I believe, that I wasn't already fully like God, but I am. Next, over on the left. Since God is holy, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. The penalty for sin is death, or spiritual separation from God. God's holiness demands justice. His wrath towards sin requires punishment. Now, over on the right, what I've discovered is that sin has consequence. It damages, it blinds, it punishes, it destroys, sucking all life from its victims. However, Adam's sin did not alter God at all. God's love for me or proximity to me never changes. He never leaves me or turns his back. We're going to continue. The fourth item in in the left column, the gospel that I was taught, But since God is loving, he sent Jesus to take my place. On the cross, Jesus suffered God's wrath and the just penalty of my guilt and sin. Jesus became a blood sacrifice for my sin. While hanging on the cross, God turns his back on Jesus because he is too holy to look upon him or sin. Now, on the right, this is what I've discovered. Jesus came to demonstrate that God would rather die for his enemies than allow them to suffer. Jesus was murdered by a religious system that demanded sacrifice. God instead simply forgave all sin, reconciling the world or humanity to himself through Jesus. And finally, over on the left, the gospel that I learned and heard while I was growing up If I personally believe this system and accept Jesus into my heart, number one, God will forgive my sins. Number two, I'll become a Christian. And number three, I'll go to heaven. Then, I must maintain a biblical standard of righteousness through obedience to a system of beliefs so that I don't lose this forgiveness or my eternal home in heaven. But what I've discovered about the gospel is this. God forgave my sins in Jesus through grace, not through something I've confessed or believed. He reconciled me to himself in Jesus. I didn't receive him, he received me. My objective isn't heaven. It's living in the now presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The goal of my life now has become loving others as a passionate Christ follower myself. Let me ask you something. How do you identify with any part of this chart? Do you? Do you see yourself on the left or mostly on the right? Do you see yourself maybe several things on the left were true about what you understood to be the good news, the gospel? A couple things on the right you already believed? Is it possible that you're like me where the left totally defines the gospel you grew up with and on the right you are staggering a little bit in your mind right now to embrace 
that that could possibly be the good news. And yet I submit to you that it is. That none of the things, none of the things that we proposed in our key statement are true. And here's that key statement again. If the gospel is a system of correct beliefs with the objective of going to heaven at life's end, coercing others into accepting Jesus lest they be eternally punished could possibly make sense. However, what if the gospel is none of these? Any comments? Questions? I'll go to the chat window here and see if there's anything in the... Hey, Linda, good to see you. So glad you could join from home, yes. <laughs> Ralph, our, our beloved brother from Switzerland who watches each week says, of course, I see myself on the right. <laughs> Smiley face. In a very unpolitical way, though, he says. Well, thank you, everybody. Good to see each of you. Regardless of how you might identify with this chart, what I'd like to do is give you three foundations from Scripture regarding what the good news is. Are you ready? The good news story. Number one, and... Well, I'll continue. The first foundation, God's eternal purpose was our adoption into the Trinitarian dance. I love that idea. I love that statement. I think it is so depictive, is that a word? Of where we live and our relationship with Jesus. What am I talking about? Well, Paul said it in Ephesians chapter one. Watch this, verse five. He foreordained us for himself to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus, the king. That's how he wanted it, and that's what gave him delight. Now think of this. God has always delighted over you. There has never been a time where God did not delight in you, ever. And it's always been his purpose, even before you were born, to adopt you. You say, oh, adopt me? You mean I wasn't born in that? No, now, now listen. <laughs> you are a child of God and you were born that way. But adoption's even better. There's parents who have kids that, mm, what a mistake. Oh, didn't mean to have that one. Oh, we were camping. Uh, you know, it's like, well, it would, if you adopt a kid, you want them. Right? You intentionally go after them. You spend the money, the time, the preparation. It's you are invested in an adoption. <laughs> he foreordained. Before you were born in the plan, the mind, the heart of God, he foreordained that you were his for himself to be adopted. That's how he wanted it, Scripture says. That's what gave him delight. That's the first foundation then. God's eternal purpose 
was our adoption into the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now there's a fourth, me. Get this. Here's what the Phillips translation says of verse 5 of our text there. For consider what he has done. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us to become, in Christ, his holy and blameless children, living within his constant care. He planned, in his purpose of love, that he would be, that we should be adopted as his own children through Jesus Christ. The message translation, long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind had settled on us as the focus of his love, and long, long ago he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. There's never been a time where God ever had a different thought than one of joy and lavish giving he loves you, he's excited about you, he's thrilled to give you. Now, does that sound like the Western idea of the gospel that you may have learned? It certainly isn't what I learned. To listen to the Western ideas of the gospel, you'd think Jesus was plan B. God's uh-oh, what are we going to do now? We've got to do something. Adam and Eve fell. Oh, no. It's like Jesus was plan B. Hey, beloved, the real fall of Adam and Eve came before they snacked on the fruit. The real fall of Adam and Eve came before they snacked on the fruit. They fell when they began believing the lie that the serpent told them instead of God's loving design. God's response to that fall was a passionate, no, no, I will not leave my children to live life in misery and ultimately to be destroyed in eternal conscious torment. No, and by the way, that is the wrath of God. That's how the wrath of God should be, uh, should be defined. God's no, I will not leave you. I'm going to pursue you. Yes, he was angry over what happened. Yes, in his wrath, he was passionate. But it was a passionate, no, I'm not going to leave you to yourself. Baxter Kruger states, wrath is not the opposite of love. Wrath is the love of God in action, in opposing action. And again he says, the death of Jesus Christ was not punishment from the hands of an angry God. It was the Son's ultimate identification with fallen Adam and the supreme expression of faithfulness to his own identity as the one who lives in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. I didn't learn that. I didn't learn it in Sunday school. I didn't learn it in any of the sermons that came from the pulpit when I was in church and attending and growing up, and I didn't learn it in Bible college. I've discovered it since. By allowing myself and having the courage to read and to listen outside of my narrow way of thinking about the gospel.
Let me say it this way. The only fall and separation from God is in your own mind towards God. Now, I didn't make that up. Paul said it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Romans chapter 2, verse 12 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, before there was any law, there was the Trinity, the joy, the love, the holiness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united in a desire for you to be one with them. And it's never been any other way. You are God's design. And what happened in the garden and with Adam and Eve and, quote, original sin has not changed God's original design and the fact that you were predestined before you were ever born. Foundation number two. Sin, foundation to the gospel. Sin is a disease. Now, in the legal presentation of the gospel, the left column, the problem introduced by the fall of Adam was breaking the rules. But in the Hebrew, the rabbinical, the Septuagint, and the early fathers or early church's view, the problem was that humanity became diseased. The disease is the root problem. Breaking the law is the symptom. Now note, if this is true, then the gospel is about healing and reconciliation, not punitive judgment. Is hell necessary to share the gospel? No. Stay away from it. Tell people the real gospel. Tell people that before they were born, God had his eye on them. He's always loved them, always cherished them. He's excited about them, and he's made them his child. Secondly, tell them that any sin is a disease. Now, let me ask you a question. When you encounter disease, do you pronounce a curse over that person because they're feeling sick, because they're wrestling with disease? Do you question their integrity? Do you start looking for something they must have done to become that way? (laughs) No, if somebody's got a disease or they're hurting, You come to their aid. You come to their side. You love them. You speak words of kindness and you're supportive. If necessary, you get them to the doctor or to the hospital. That's what you do if it's a disease. But we've made our gospel regarding Jesus Christ and being saved and going to heaven one of being punitive, punitive judgment. You better change your life. You better change the way you live. You better start coming to church. You've got to this and that, and it's a whole list of things. This is the primary reason why the atonement theory, known as penal substitution, is unworthy of believing. 
and it's so devious in its corruption of the gospel story and message. Devious, absolutely destroys it. Christ's death wasn't punishment at the hands of a vengeful, angry God. It was Jesus' identification with the brokenness and disease of Adam and all humanity. It was the beginning of the end. The end of what? The end of death, the end of hell, the end of Hades, the end of suffering and punishment and sickness and disease. It was the end of all of that. The cross and the resurrection was God's mind made up about all of humanity. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. From the Phillips translation, verse 14. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life. Now, (laughs) people who tend to believe the things on the right side about the gospel, in my column, my table that I presented to you earlier, are often accused of being universalists, easy on sin, and denying the true gospel. I submit to you that it's the beliefs, it's the theology, it's the views on the right side that are actually the gospel that the early church believed, that the patristic fathers believed and taught, and that Jesus himself taught, and that's taught in the Hebrew scriptures. I submit to you that it's the things on the right side of the column that are actually the message that Paul and Jesus preached when Paul says he included everybody in his death so that everybody could be included in his life. Now, you call it what you want. You can call it universalism. You can criticize. You can can level the criticism that, oh, uh, he's deceived. They're deceived over there. That belief, that church, that person, that pastor, that book. I had somebody tell me who was questioning when when they first heard me this was a couple years ago when they first heard me make the comment that I no longer believed in eternal conscious torment for them that was a line in the sand they couldn't get past that and as we met on the phone before they left uh, left fellowshipping with with us here's one of the comments that they made I have never attended a church that taught that Every church I've ever attended has taught hell as eternal conscious torment. And I asked this individual, well, would you be willing to read anything outside of your determined view? No, I don't want to be confused. (laughs) Listen, dear one, truth will stand up on its own. You don't need to be worried about being confused. Truth stands on its own. Be a seeker of truth. God fundamentally reordered the entire universe and human race in how Jesus identified as us. We were co-crucified, co-buried, co-raised with Jesus. Folks, this is foundational. Jesus died for all, therefore all died. Jesus' death was my death. Jesus' crucifixion was my crucifixion. Jesus' burial was my burial. Jesus' resurrection was my resurrection. 
Peter says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at this more carefully. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, what? According to what you believe, according to the works you do, the church you attend, do you believe the correct things? No, according to his mercy. He didn't even ask you. He's caused you to be born again. The gospel isn't about me receiving Jesus. The gospel is about how Jesus received me and washed me and cleansed me, got me into the hospital, treated sin like it was a disease rather than something to be punitively judged. All right, foundation three. I told you there were three of them. Foundation number three for the gospel is God is not divided. There isn't his holiness on one side and his love on the other. Imagine in this legal gospel, the left side of the column that I gave you, the table that I gave you, in this legal gospel, God has two sides, one which is loving and one which is holy. Imagine now, in the legal gospel, in that model, the loving side of God sends his son while the holy side of God isn't the least interested in this mercy. That side pursues one thing, justice which punishes sin. So you got, in the legal model, you got the loving God who, after all, sends his son, but then the other side of God is that he's not at all interested in that. He wants to burn you to a crisp and send you to eternal conscious torment. But thank God Jesus steps in and saves us and becomes the whipping boy. Let me ask you something. How is it that God is too holy to look upon sin and yet Jesus became sin? Oh, well, that was Jesus that did that, not God the Father. No, wait a minute. We don't worship three gods here. The whole idea of the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God, three expressions. As I said last week, we worship a crucified God. It is the greatest scandal of the universe that God, instead of punishing his enemies, would rather die for them and did. God died on a cross. So how is it that God can't look upon sin when God became sin for us? I'm not making this up. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Messiah did not know sin, but God made him to be sin on our behalf. He's able to see there, that was Jesus. Now, wait a minute. Do we believe in the incarnation of Jesus? What's incarnation mean? God came into human flesh. God became human. Jesus, human, Jesus representing you, me, all of us, God came into humanity. Here's the mirror translation of that. This is the divine exchange. He who knew no sin embraced our perversion. He appeared to be without form. This was the mystery of God's prophetic 
poetry. He was disguised in our distorted image and marred with our iniquities. He took our sorrows, our pain, our shame, and birthed his righteousness in us. He took our sins, and, he, and we became his innocence. Hey, next time you are sharing, quote, the gospel with a friend, acquaintance, a coworker, a family member, start out here with Paul's idea of the gospel. Instead of telling them what they have to change and what they have to quit doing and how they need to come to church and they need to believe differently and they need to accept Jesus, start here. You know God loves you so much. He's so excited about you. He has only good planned for you. And he loves you so much that he actually has already received you into himself, reconciled you to himself. Oh, and he's taken everything in your life, mine too, that's distorted or marred, that's sinful, that's painful, that brings us shame, and he's absorbed it into himself. And so, pretty good deal, huh? He loves you so much. He just says, hey, want to believe that? Want to walk with me? Because I sure want to walk with you. Just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one, the grace, the mercy, holiness, justice, and wrath of God are one expression, a single-minded devotion of God's love for his family. God's wrath is not outside God's love. They're just not separate. There isn't a side of God's love, holiness, which doesn't or can't accept us. I love Baxter Kruger's comment about all of this, and I'll quote, Adam's plunge certainly threatened God's dreams for us, but that threat had been anticipated and already strategically overcome in the predestination of the incarnation. Jesus Christ did not become human to fix the fall. Listen now. He became human to accomplish the eternal purpose of our adoption. And in order to bring our adoption to pass, the fall had to be called to a halt and undone. The catastrophe of Adam certainly made the road of incarnation, and thus our adoption, one of pain and suffering and death. But it did not create its necessity. Did you hear that? Jesus did not go to the cross because God demanded a blood sacrifice. Jesus is not a footnote to Adam and his fall. The fall, and indeed creation itself, is a footnote to the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. Wow. Too long for a bumper sticker, but boy, I hope you get these notes and review them and listen to this message again and again because, by the way, this is the gospel. Can you understand better now the call to repentance? Can you understand now that repentance doesn't mean shame and guilt and going forward and shaking the preacher's hand under, you know, an atmosphere of heavy music and pulling on your emotions? Repentance means this, a radical reorientation of our minds where we place God at the center of our thinking. What I've shared with you this morning is radical, and it's going to require you to place it at the center of your mind if you're truly going to repent. Now, 
there is a uh, modern day theologian thought to be one of two or three of the greatest minds and thinkers, especially concerning the patristic father, he, fathers. He is an expert when it comes to all of their writings. Here is what David Bentley Hart says regarding the idea of eternal conscious torment and the Apostle Paul. I quote, What is definitely not there, absolutely clearly not in Paul, and that would definitely be in Paul given the gravity of the concern that it should evoke, is the notion of eternal torment. For Paul, Christ came to save us from death, dissolution, and destruction. But if he actually believed in the stage of eternal post-mortem suffering, it would have been rather colossally silly of him never to have mentioned it. It is not there because it was because he was unaware of the idea. And he was unaware because the idea is nonsense. End quote. I would like to illustrate for you in a short little video what I think is one of the greatest takeaways from this message and these three foundations of the gospel. He was just completely a ball of who knows what. Look at the ears, they're like plastered in He came in as a stray, obviously in quite a state and probably felt pretty terrible. That's like one solid piece. The dog must have been going on almost a year without being groomed. So we kind of set him down on the floor and he came to each of us and wagged what he could of his tail. We knew that we could give Panda the immediate help that he definitely needed. He very much smelled like a barnyard when we put him in the back of our vehicle. We really just wanted to give him a moment to decompress. I think he instantly knew where he was at. I put him on the table and he was like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> Mario would be there tunneling and tunneling millimeter by millimeter. He would get through these small pieces. It was like you saw the light. cooperative and I think he really leaned into it. He looked like Don King. You couldn't tell where his tiny little ears stopped and where the fur continued to go. It was pretty miraculous as soon as those top layers came off, we were like, oh my god, this is a puppy. 
I was scrolling through Instagram and I see Panda looking like a little matted lump getting groomed. I know it sounds crazy, but I just want to meet him. The one main thing going through my head was, I hope he likes me. <laughs> He just started to play with us. You are so distracted. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. We were just like, yeah, this is a good fit. Congrats, pandas. Bye, pandas. Once he got a soft bed and blanket, I think it was then he realized, these are my people, this is my pack. He's already got two car seats and a stroller. He loves his Target runs. He loves his Starbucks runs. Every time I grab my purse, he's like, where are we going? I'm going too, where are we going? Oh, that tail. It just feels really good. Being able to give him a warm, happy home, a bed, a blanket, us to snuggle with, and it's just gonna get better from here. How dare we look at another human being? And despite what they're covered with, mind, body, soul, not be able to see past that to the cleansing, loving, redemptive work that Jesus not only can do, but has already done. They don't know it yet. It's underneath. That little puppy is the same puppy after that he was before. Inside. The DNA was the same. But he was covered with a guilt and a shame. It was so thick it had to be cut away. And that's why Jesus died. He died to conquer the disease of sin, not to send anybody to hell. We're going to receive communion. And I think that perhaps this message speaks for itself as we bring it into the spirit of communion then. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. Boy, does that take on new meaning. That's you. That's me. I was co-crucified, co-buried, co-raised. Grab the juice the bread that you have there. At supper, Jesus took the bread, said, this is my body, 
see here I am everything I could dream everything I could possibly want to be Jesus became it for me and he did away with all of the darkness that keeps me from being all that he wants me to be let's take and eat the body of the Lord And after supper, he took the cup. He said, you know what, guys, gals, this is the new covenant I'm making with you. All right? None of everything I want for you, none of it, none of, none of all that God dreams for you is something that you have to do something to deserve or earn. I'm going to make it all possible. Just receive me. Let's take and drink the blood of the Lord.